Good morning, Grace Bible Church. Welcome to those who are joining us online and a special welcome also to those for the first time. Maybe you're just visiting with us here today or you've been visiting for a while. Uh, we want to encourage you to, uh, to reach out, maybe meet someone that's seated near you. Chances are the person near you is also new here to Grace Bible Church because we've been uh, receiving a lot of new visitors as of recently, which is always a wonderful thing. So welcome. We are going to be in Psalm chapter 110. So if you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to Psalm 110. You know, we all have needs in life. Every single human being we know as, that's walked the face of this planet that's currently alive has needs. We have emotional needs, physical needs, spiritual needs. And what's interesting is that God has hardwired us with these needs. And naturally, as humans, we hunt for these needs, for the fulfillment of these needs in various ways. Sometimes we don't fully understand the needs that we might have, and so we might look in places that don't bring fulfillment, that don't bring satisfaction. We look for satisfaction and fulfillment in people. We look for satisfaction and fulfillment in the things that we do day to day. It could be a job. I mean, we could fill in the blank. All of us um, struggle with those things at different times. But you see, Psalm 110 is one of those passages of Scripture, one of those psalms that declares for us meeting of the greatest need of all of humanity. In fact, this psalm is so special that it answers a lot of those questions of searching. The answer isn't this one, two, three-step process. It's not an answer of what is going to satisfy my needs, but more so, who's going to satisfy my needs? The needs for the brokenness that I experience as a human being. Who meets the needs of the brokenness and sin that we experience is the answer of this psalm. This is a loaded psalm of, full of theology. In it we have prophecy. We have a declaration of a prophetic coming King, Savior Jesus, who we know to be Jesus. We have an understanding of the relationship, a little bit more of an understanding of the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. In this psalm, we have uh, a declaration of the rule of Jesus Christ as King, of his uh, position as our high priest in the priesthood, his kingship, and of course, his judgment. This is a loaded psalm. In fact, Derek Kinder, in his commentary, writes this about Psalm 110. What this oracle, or this prophecy, declares was destined to form the basis of the apostles' teaching on the exaltation, the heavenly session, and the royal priesthood of Christ. It is one of the most quoted of all psalms. And we're going to look at that a little bit more uh, this morning. And what's remarkable also about this psalm is that it brings together two offices that Jesus himself holds. It brings together our understanding of him being our king and our priest in one person, Jesus Christ. You see, as our king, 
Jesus rules, reigns, he protects, and as our priest, he makes atonement, payment for our sin, intercedes for us, and brings us into the relationship and the worship of the Father that we all desperately need and that he hardwired us for. You see, we needed both of these things in our Savior. We need him to be our king who rules, who subdues wickedness, who calls us to a holy calling. And when we face devastation of sin in our lives, who gives hope and brings victory, we need him to be our priest, to take on our sin on himself, to lay on us his spotless righteousness, bringing us with boldness into the throne room of God. You see, both of these roles are prophesied about here in Psalm 10. And so today we're going to talk about these things. We're going to explore these things in three different parts as we break down the psalm, as it speaks of our Savior as a fulfillment of our greatest needs. The first thing we're going to look at is a prophetic promise is made from the Father to the Savior's Son. The second thing will be a promise of priesthood secured in the Father's character. And the third thing is a promise of judgment and a place of security. So number one, a prophetic promise is made from the Father to the Savior's Son. Verses 1 through 3. Just look at these verses with me. This is a declaration of the Lord to my Lord. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. Rule over your surrounding enemies. Your people will volunteer on your day of battle in holy splendor from the womb of the dawn to the dew of your youth belongs to you. Now, just a few technical things to help explain what's going on here. The first thing is this. We are opened with the psalm, a psalm of David. This is a declaration. See, that's a really important word here in this psalm because this is what is introducing a prophecy. Uh, some other translations may translate it differently, but I, I think this is a really good translation of this word. It's a declaration. It means to utter a prophecy, to speak as a prophet, a divine utterance. He's basically saying this, listen to what you're about to hear because God is speaking. You see, David in this moment, he's putting on his prophetic hat as a prophet of the Lord. And then he says this, this is a declaration or a prophecy of the Lord, God, Yahweh, God the Father to my Lord, to my Lord. And as our local Hebrew scholar, Ian Valancourt at Heritage College and Seminary uh, points out, we understand that David refers to my Lord. He's speaking of a future ruler that he was promised in his line that would accomplish these things that are about to be declared. And we, as, you know, as, uh, as believers today, we understand that this was all accomplished through Jesus and his person. See, my Lord, in 
the Hebrew in Psalm 110 points to a human ruler at this point. And then later on in the passage, when it says, uh, when it talks about the Lord again, the Lord is at your right hand in verse 5, that's speaking of a divine Lord, same person. So we understand Jesus in his humanity as a human ruler and Jesus in his divinity as a divine ruler. And we understand too that as he sits at the right hand throne of God, that he brings with him all of the power, all the strength, all the authority that God himself has. You see, we also know that this psalm is most definitely talking about Jesus, a future king Jesus, because the psalm is quoted, uh, is the most quoted of all of the psalms in the New Testament. And every single time it's referring to Jesus. Fourteen times this psalm is used in the New Testament to declare Christ's kingship and his priesthood. I mean, even Jesus himself related himself to this psalm in Matthew chapter 22, verses 41 to 43. Look at these verses with me. They're going to come up on the screen. While the Pharisees were together, Jesus questioned them. What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? And they replied, David's. He asked them, how is it then that David, inspired by the Spirit, calls him Lord? The Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies, put your enemies under your feet. And if David calls him Lord, how then can he be his son? And we also see this in Acts chapter 2, verses 32 to 35. Pastor David just preached on this a couple of months ago. The, uh, the uh, sermon that Peter gives in Acts chapter 2, this is what Peter says in his sermon. God has raised this Jesus. We are all witnesses of this. Therefore, since, we, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit. He has poured out what you both see and you hear, for it was not David who ascended into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. See, Psalm 110 takes us on this journey of Christ's enthronement as king and concluding with final victory as described in the book of Revelation, pointing to the second coming, the return of Jesus. And do you know what we're able to do as we read a passage like Psalm 110? We're invited in this conversation, not just to be a spectator, Not just to be this fly on the wall to this promise, this conversation that's taking place between God the Father and God the Son. Because ultimately, I mean, it is God talking to the Son, saying these things are going to happen. We're not just there as a spectator. We're not just there as a fly on the wall as we go through this passage. But you see, as we go through this passage, we're confronted and we're comforted with the reality that all of this has to take place because of our brokenness. That all of this has to take place because of your brokenness and my brokenness. Because of our sin. 
this wonderful, most amazing conversation takes place between God the Father and God the Son, and we're able to look at this, and it's taking place because of you and because of me, ultimately for the glory of God himself. You know, praise God that this took place. In essence, really, this whole message, the whole message of all of Scripture is kind of summed up in Psalm 110. And as we read this passage and realize this, they're having to have this conversation because of me. They're having to have this conversation because of you, because of our brokenness, because of the brokenness in this world and the needs that each person has to find redemption and fulfillment. As believers, this passage brings great joy and rest as we unpack the graciousness of our high priest savior who sits at the right hand of God on our behalf. And we're confronted and we're comforted by the truth that our life and eternity are in his hands, in the hands of such a worthy king and high priest. But also as humanity we're reminded of the destructive forces of sin that require judgment to be served, justice to be made. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you've never trusted Jesus to save you from your sin, we encourage you, please don't tune out of this message or this psalm. This psalm is for you too. This message is for you too. You are, in, you are invited to join in the comfort and hope of the priesthood of Christ by turning to Christ, trusting in him to save you. You see, as we look at this promise in verses 1 to 3, we see it break down in two main ways. The first is a promise of ruling authority promise of ruling authority. See, God makes some of these remarks to Jesus, the son, to the uh, Savior son here. He says, sit at my right hand until your enemies are made your footstool. The father will extend the strength and the rule of the son even over the surrounding enemies. And we see this throughout this psalm. Sit at the right hand. This is a very interesting, important phrase that he uses because it has the idea of a vice ruler position of authority. You know, for God to place Jesus at his right hand was declaring Christ's divine power and authority to rule just as God rules, which means that God's laws are Christ's laws. God's character in ruling is Christ's character in ruling. His love is Christ's love. His grace is Christ's grace. His holiness, Christ's holiness. Justice, Christ's justice. All belong to and make up the character of the Son of God, the Savior. His judgment on sin and wickedness is just as much Christ's judgment. And also from this position of rule and power... We know from Romans 8, 34, that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father interceding for you and I. It's a position of authority, but one of firm, gracious rule and a position of waiting as well. Because he says this, he says, wait until 
your enemies are made your footstool. Sit here until your enemies are made your footstool. 1 Corinthians 15, 25 to 28 explains it to us this way. For he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death. For God, is put, uh, for God has put everything under his feet. Now when it says everything is put under him, it is obvious that he who puts everything under him is the exception. When everything is subject to Christ, then the Son himself will be subject to the one who subjected everything to him, so that God may be all and in all. See, at the right hand, Jesus waits for the day when all of his enemies are made his footstool. Enemies made your footstool. Very similar language that God uses with King David in chapter um, seven of Second Samuel, when he says, I will give you rest from all of your enemies. Interesting, he uses the word rest. I'll give you rest from all your enemies. Philippians 2 also points to this, that every person in the world that has ever existed will be brought into subjection under Christ. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, even forcibly. But we also see this promise is a promise of loyalty. There's a difference between the person who's going to be the enemy made the footstool and the person who is actually a loyal follower. And we see this in verse 3. Your people will volunteer on your day of battle in holy splendor from the womb of the dawn of dew. Of your youth belongs to you. If you were to translate this verse very woodenly, literally, it would, it would sound something like this. Your people will be a free will offering in the day of your strength and holy majesty from the womb of the dawn to you is the dew of your youth. Um, very kind of confusing language. In fact, a lot of scholars have different opinions as to what exactly being said here. But basically, everybody can agree that everything good will be going for you, is basically what, what God is saying to the Son. Everything good is going to be going for you. You're going to have the loyalty of your people. Everything's going to happen in the way that I'm promising it to happen. You know, in the Hebrew, it says your people will be a free will offering in the day of your strength or the day of your battle. They will be loyal to you. They'll give up everything for you and be by your side in battle. So see the difference? The people that are loyal to the Savior, Son, the King, the High Priest in the day of battle, very different than the enemies that are made his footstool. The second thing that we see of this, of this promise, the second main point is a promise of priesthood secured in the Father's character. It's a promise of priesthood secured in the Father's character. Verse 4 says this, The Lord has sworn an oath and will not take it back. You are a priest forever, according to the pattern of Melchizedek. Two things here. God has sworn an oath. He will not take it back. This is speaking to the uh, immutability of God, that God cannot change. Speaking to the unchanging truth of, of God, the unchanging mind of God. You see, this prophecy is true and secure in the character of God. Numbers 28, 19 points to this. Also, Titus 1, 2 reminds us that God can't and doesn't lie. It is impossible for him to go back on his word. 
I mean, what an incredible comfort for us today. We are loved and we are cared for by a God who doesn't change his mind. When we repent and trust Christ to save us, he keeps us secure. He keeps us safe. He promises so much to us in life and in eternity. And, he, and we can rest assured that it is going to happen because what God said so. He doesn't change his mind. What he says is going to happen. And this is the case of this prophecy to Christ. This is going to happen, and I will not take it back. You know, when we're bogged down with the weight of our circumstances or our sin and struggle, we can be reminded that we are secured in a God who doesn't change his mind, doesn't turn his back on his redeemed. What he promises will happen. And he goes on to say, what I promise is going to happen. I don't change my mind. This is the promise. You are a priest forever according to the pattern of Melchizedek. This is what he says to the Savior's son. You're a priest forever according to the pattern of Melchizedek. This is not the same as uh, the Levitical priesthood. This is a non-Levitical priesthood, if you're familiar with that. See, Melchizedek was, a, was, a, was, a, was the king of Salem, and he was a high priest of God. The first time that we hear of Melchizedek mentioned is in Genesis chapter 14. Abraham had just finished, this was before his name was Abraham, so he's still Abram. He had just finished this defeat of this, of this wicked nation. He was exhausted. In fact, you could probably even argue that he was depressed. He was physically, emotionally, spiritually completely drained. And then in Genesis chapter 14, out of nowhere, when Abraham is just in this state of need, this guy Melchizedek shows up. And what does Melchizedek do in Genesis 14? Well, he visits Abram. He visits him and he gives him bread and he gives him wine and he blesses him in the name of the Almighty God. Just doesn't end there. You see what happens like a verse later in Genesis chapter 15 is one of the most remarkable, famous interactions that God has with Abraham. When God then visits Abraham after this time of refreshment with Melchizedek, God visits Abraham. He orders him to gather these animals for sacrifice. So Abraham gathers these animals for sacrifice. He then orders him to cut these animals in half and to create this path and put a piece of the animal on each side of the path. And he lays these pieces down. And what God then does is God comes and he passes through the pieces. You're like, what's so significant about that? You see, God was making a very special covenant, very special promise with Abram in this moment. He was promising him land. He was promising him seed. He was promising him blessing. He was promising the coming Savior King of Psalm chapter 110. And by passing through these pieces of these animals, he is saying, if these things don't come to be, let me be cut like the sacrifices before you. 
And then we don't hear about Melchizedek again until Psalm chapter 110. When David declares that the Savior will be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I mean, think about being a Hebrew person reading this for the first time. You would have known about that story of Melchizedek and Abram. Reading this passage, been like, Melchizedek, that guy's, that guy's a legend. Well, someone even greater than Melchizedek is coming. See, this is not mentioned again after this, after this passage until the book of Hebrews when it's mentioned eight times. Melchizedek's mentioned eight times in the book of Hebrews, making connection between the risen Savior's son and Melchizedek, noting that Jesus being a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek meets us in our time of need and brokenness like Melchizedek's visit with Abram cares for us in our time of need, offering us life-giving bread and wine, his broken body and poured out blood for the salvation of our souls. So at this point, we declare with the writer of Hebrews the truth of the prophecy of Psalm 110, it to be our hope. When the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 6 of Hebrews, because God wanted to show his unchangeable purpose even more clearly to the heirs of the promise, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that through two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we know have fled for refuge, might have strong encouragement to seize the hope set before us. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. Jesus has entered on our behalf as a forerunner because he has become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Our high priest Jesus has done what nobody else could. Drinking the cup of God's wrath satisfying it forever for those who repent and trust in him, meeting our greatest need, bringing us into holy fellowship with the Father, behind the curtain into the holy of holies, where now we boldly approach the throne of God because our high priest has made it so after the order of Melchizedek. The final thing we see in this passage is a, this part of the declaration is that of judgment on sin. A promise of judgment, but also it's a place of security. Verses 5 to 7 say this, the Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings. Hebrew actually says smash. Smash kings on the day of his anger. He will judge the nations heaping up corpses. He will smash or crush leaders over the entire world. He will drink from the brook by the road. Therefore, he will lift up his head. You see, here we get this final conquest of the Savior's son, the king crushing and ruling over evil, wickedness, and earthly kingdoms. 
judgment on sin, on unrepentant sin. You see, the psalm up to this point is this, is this prelude to this final act of the conquest of the king. And as a commentator puts it in this scene, it's switched from that of a throne room to now a battlefield. In terms of the New Testament, it would be like going from Hebrews to Revelation. These are things that haven't fully happened yet, but we are reminded that when we're awaiting, that we here are awaiting the return of our Savior, the King, for the final consummation of his kingdom. We're reminded that the unbeliever should look at these words with warning. And as believers, we look at these words soberly. We read these words and we see, I deserve that judgment. But because of my king, my high priest Jesus, I don't have to drink of that wrath, that cup of God. So as believers, we look at these words and because of our sin has been paid for it, then we long for the day when Jesus returns to his enemies being made his footstool. And as we wait, we call out Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come. And with this security is this humility and awe that we are redeemed by such a holy and just Savior as this. And that no sin can go unpunished. The ending of this psalm is interesting in verse 7. It says, He will drink from the brook by the road, therefore he will lift up his head. Speaking of Jesus, it's this picture of this wearied, victorious warrior after battle being by water, lifting his head, getting water for refreshment, lifting his head up in victory. And that final day, Christ, having accomplished his divine and glorious triumphs, lifts his head in victory. You know, a passage like this should really do two major things for us. It should bring us to worship and reflection. It should bring us to worship, saying, you know, thank you, Lord, for meeting my greatest needs. I needed a savior, not just any savior, but one who would be king, who would rule. One who could be a high priest, make atonement for my sin on my behalf. This brings us to worship of that great king. But also in reflection, we are reminded of our need of Christ above everything else. We need his rule as king who stands holy and blameless, calling us to holiness and redemption, warning us of his justice and judgment. But we're also reminded of our need for his priesthood, making atonement for our sins, laying on himself the iniquity of us all and on us his righteousness. So let's purpose to be a people of worship and reflection as we come across Psalm 110. A people, like verse 3 says, your people will volunteer on your day of battle. A people who willingly come to and follow Christ into battle. Our life is now our king's. 
He rules our hearts. He reigns over us. He's come to us in our time of need. He's cared for us with his broken body, his spilled blood. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for these truths. For this tremendous, this tremendous prophecy. For this conversation that takes place between you and our Savior, the Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that this psalm becomes just a declaration of your grace and your goodness. But it also becomes this moment of reflection, of us realizing that this psalm is here because of our brokenness. Because of our need of you. Father, we pray for those who might be here today, maybe online, maybe they're listening. I don't know everyone's circumstances, but Father, we know that you do. We pray for those who still need to turn, repent, and trust in Christ to save them, for him to become their Savior, their King, their priest forever. We pray, Lord, you would move in their hearts to do so. We thank you, Lord, that with confidence and with boldness, we can live in the reality of these truths. We can live in the reality that you love us, you sent your son to die for us, to provide salvation for us to drink the cup of your wrath on our behalf. We thank you, Lord, that Jesus, through a psalm like this, shows us that he has conquered sin, death, and hell. And his enemies will be made his footstool. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.